with us, but we'll get going. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open them to Daniel chapter 2. And as you do that, let me remind you of a few things. Uh, Remember, we decided we're taking a look at the life of Daniel in order to learn more about our great God and how he works in our lives. And because we're looking primarily at Daniel's life and the fact that we only have four weeks, our focus is going to be on his life and not the prophecies and dreams and all that he was so faithful to deliver. Our study is going to be mainly the first six chapters. Also, as a matter of review, and I guess I should pick mine up too, um, I told you that I would give you one thing about the culture, two things about Daniel himself, and three things about God each week. And so let's just kind of review what we learned last week. They're there on the right side of your page. We learned about the culture, that it was a culture of desecration. And we learned that Daniel was wise and knowledgeable about both God and man. And also that Daniel was resolved. He was firmly committed to not defile himself with the king's food and the... um, The culture that was there. And then about God, we learn that he is sovereign, that he's loving and compassionate, and that God is our provider, the provider of every good and perfect gift. Tonight, we'll look briefly at the only dream prophecy that we'll cover at all in our four-week study. We'll kind of do an overview of it, but we won't fully analyze it. I mean, I'm sure that Pastor Don could preach weeks about this chapter, and we're just going to kind of Skim it, but we are going to read it, read pretty much the whole thing. And if you're looking at your Bible, it is kind of a long chapter, but we'll be taking it in fits and starts so that we can do all of it. But before we get too ahead of myself, let's pray, okay? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have revealed to us through it. I pray that you would be with us tonight, that you would open our eyes and our minds to what you have to say. And you would teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, one thing that I thought was particularly interesting to me before we even get started is that um, here in chapter 2, the original text was not written in Hebrew. It was written in Aramaic. Chapters 1 and chapters 8 through 12 were written in Hebrew originally. And they were thought to be directed mainly to God's chosen people. But chapters 2 through 7 were written in the language common to that day. They were written in Aramaic. Why? Why do you think that was so? We don't really know. I'm just asking you to ponder it. Why do you think? Any idea? A more general readership. So chapter 1 and 8 through 12 were pointed to his chosen people but these other chapters included things that others would need to know about too so a greater viewership it it pertained to them as well Um, it they could benefit from it too okay all right let's go ahead and start reading Daniel chapter 2 verses 1 through 6 is where we'll start In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. 
Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. You can just hear them chanting it back to him. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. The king, the king who had captured Daniel and enslaved these young men, was troubled over a dream. And in those days, and really even today in many areas of the Middle East, dreams were often thought to be messages from God's. And that was part of the reason why Joseph's first dream was so maddening to his brothers. Remember, Stuart talked to us about how he, Joseph came and shared the dream and about how they all bowed down to him. Well, imagine the brothers. Not only were they saying that they were bowing down to him, but if a dream was a message from God, Daniel got this message from God that they were going to bow down to him. That just makes it doubly bad. Um, so... The dreams, if they were messages from God, then even this powerful king who so typically would, who um, felt like he was in control of everything, this one itself troubled him. And so he called those who would interpret the dream, but he wouldn't tell them the dream. He said, no, you got to tell me both the dream and the interpretation. Why do you think he did that? Yeah, I mean, if you were those magicians, sorcerers, or Chaldeans, which I hope you wouldn't be, but if you were, you would, if the king told you this dream, you would make up something to satisfy him. You would kind of listen and think, well, maybe it's this, because how would he know, right? But this time he would know. He wouldn't even tell him the dream. And not only would he not tell him the dream, but the punishment was pretty graphic, wasn't it? I could hear y'all chuckling, you know. You'll be torn limb from limb and your houses ruined, quite possibly their families devastated. But to be fair, the reward was pretty big too. Gifts and rewards and great honor if they could tell him the dream and the interpretation. So let's see how they responded. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. 
So even when the king asked twice, they said, it just can't be done. It's impossible. But, but read that last verse again. These magicians, sorcerers, Chaldeans said, no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Whose dwelling is not with flesh. Does that remind you of anything? Does it? Maybe John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So well before Jesus came and dwelt among us, we see this mention of how no one could reveal these dreams except little G gods who don't dwell in our flesh, dwell among flesh. But we worship the God who, out of his great love for us, did come in the flesh. And I can't help but think this is a tiny little message from God saying, just wait. I'm sending one who will dwell among you, and I'm going to bring you back to me. I know you're in exile right now, but I'm going to come dwell there, and we will be reunited. But I digress. Really, what I wanted you to look at in the verse was, no one can show it to the king except the gods. It always sobers me when I read the word gods with a little g and the plural sense. That, and that gives me our first point about the culture of that day. Um, and I think it's echoed in our culture as well. The culture was pagan. Pagan. Now, you may say, I think I know what pagan means, and what does that have to do with the word gods that we see here and all throughout the book of Daniel? Well, let me show you the definition of pagan. I just, okay, so I really do look at different Bible studies and commentaries, and today I went and talked to Stuart and said, okay, I don't understand this. Help me understand this. And he was pulling out all these books that I'd never seen before and helping me understand things. Um, but I just Googled pagan. What is a pagan? And this website came up that's called the Pagan Federation. So it's a current day website. Okay, This is what it says a pagan is. A follower of a polytheistic or pantheistic nature-worshipping religion. Poly, which means many. Theistic, relating to God. Thus, many gods. That culture of Daniel's day, like our culture today, believes in many gods with little g's. And that's why there were so many magicians and sorcerers and temples and altars all devoted to this plethora of gods. Let me read you a few more quotes from that website I thought were interesting. It says, paganism is the ancestral religion of the whole of humanity. This anxious, ancient religious outlook remains active throughout much of the world today. The outlook can be seen as threefold. It, it, its adherents venerate nature and worship many deities, both goddesses and gods. But here's the one that got me. With its respect for plurality... The refusal to judge other ways of life as wrong simply because they're different from one's own 
with its veneration of a natural and supernatural world from which Westerners in the age of technology have become increasingly isolated, paganism has much to offer people of European background today. Hence, it's being taken up by them in large numbers. Respect for plurality, refusal to judge others' choices. Doesn't that sound like our world today right now? Webster's Dictionary has an additional definition that I'll put up here as well. It says a pagan is one who has little or no religion and who delights in sensual pleasures and material goods. An irreligious or hedonistic person. So if that first one didn't sound like us, I know this one does. Doesn't it? Our culture is filled with people who have little or no religion and they delight in sensual pleasures and material goods. Those things, those sensual pleasures, have become their little g-gods. It was then in Daniel's day, and we are now living in a culture that's pagan. Let's keep going. I told you there's lots of scripture tonight, lots and lots. <laughs> because of this, the king was angry. Because of this, meaning they wouldn't tell the dream was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So the king is mad now. He's mad. He wants his magicians to tell him the dream, and he is just ready to kill them all, including Daniel and the young Hebrew men that, he, that were supposed to be trained in the ways of the culture. But when Daniel found out, he responded prudently. And the scripture says he asked, why is the king in such a hurry? Um, here in ESV, he said he asked if the king would appoint a time. Other versions say he requested more time. NASB says he requested a grace period. I like that. Just a little bit more time, a grace period. Basically, Daniel's saying... I believe I know where I can get help in this matter if you could just give me a little bit of time. How very bold of Daniel to go before the king. Yes? He was also making an appointment. He was also making an appointment. Okay, yes. Appoint a time. Yes, okay, you're right. Yeah. You know, in some cases, making that point to go before the king was a death sentence sometimes if you didn't have permission to go before the king. But here Daniel went through the officer of the court and then before the king and asked for just a little bit more time. And I believe it's because, and I'm going to give you the point and then I'm going to explain it to you because it may not make sense, but I think Daniel was confident. Daniel was confident. He was confident in who God had made him to be. He was confident in his God. He was confident that God had prepared him. But most of all, he was confident that God would be able to resolve the matter. 
God had uniquely gifted Daniel, and he prepared him for the task to serve here in the king's court. But Daniel knew that, and he knew that the same God who did it was also the one that was providing for every need of his, just like he did with the food. But right now, the need was protection, to have his life spared. I pray this confidence that Daniel had speaks to you. God definitely wants us to be humble before him. Definitely. He often speaks to us about the dangers of pride. And I think that's one of the, one of the things we see in our culture too that trips us up so often is pride. I'm not saying Daniel was prideful. But I do think he was confident. He had confidence in how God could use him. As we'll see play out in later passages, Daniel attributes everything back to God. He says God's the source of all wisdom. God, it's not him, it's God. But I just think he had the same confidence as, of, as that of the psalmist in Psalm 118, 5 to 7. You remember that one? Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can this pagan king do to me? The Lord is on my side as a helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Or maybe you had the confidence like Paul. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. Daniel was confident in who God was, how God had made him, and how God would use him. Yes. Mm-hmm. Seals it, doesn't it? It's better to take refuge in God than trust in men. Yes, definitely, definitely. And that's what Daniel was doing. He was trusting in God and knowing that God could do this. So let's live with confidence. Let's be like Daniel and live with confidence. Not pride or arrogance, but confidently knowing who made you, who desires to use you, and let him work in you. To bring about his purposes. That's what Daniel did. Let's keep reading. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Okay, before we can move on, let's fill in your second blank for Daniel. As soon as Daniel got the word that he had some time, he immediately called together his companions. You see, Daniel lived in community. He was isolated from his family. He was living in a foreign land. But when a crisis hit, he turned to his people, those who loved God just like he did. These three men that we know as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were captured at the same time. They abstained from the rich foods that 
would identify them as part of the pagan culture. And they were Daniel's crew, his people, his tribe, his community of believers. That's a crucial part, I think, for us, for Daniel and for us, as we live in this pagan culture. We're not at home here, so it's important for us to find our people, to find our crew, and to live in community. So, join a life group. Take somebody to coffee. Take someone to lunch. Join in. Let's do life together. Live in community. Keep going. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. As an aside, I told you I'd only give you two points about Daniel. But if I were going to give you three, (laughs) it would probably be something like Daniel was a man of praise. Because that was his immediate response when God responded and when God gave him his, the interpretation, he immediately broke out in praise and was just thankful and praising God. But I said I was only doing two, so that's just a bonus. Um, Daniel goes to Arioch. He says, get me before the king. I can tell him his dream. Arioch does. The king says, Oh, so you can tell me it's my dream and its interpretation. I skipped a few verses. Let's go to verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. The beginning of that passage, do you see how Daniel turns it back to God? Does it sound familiar? Sound like Joseph? Yeah, sounds a lot like Joseph. It isn't me that can do this. It's God. It's the God in heaven. In fact, Daniel says God in heaven. God in heaven or God of heaven is repeated five times in this chapter. It's as if Daniel is saying, that God, the one who lives there, Not any of these little g-gods that you worship in your little fake temples, but that God, the God of heaven. In fact, the word Lord, he used God because the word Lord, remember we said 
Lord, as we know it in like um, Jehovah or Yahweh, that's Hebrew transliteration. And so this is written in Aramaic. And so there's not the word Lord isn't used. And so to denote which, which God, Daniel was saying, the God of heaven, the one that resides there. Okay, the next chunk is the dream. And it's really long, but we're going to read it. <laughs> and we're going to read its interpretation all at once. It's a pretty long passage. Hang with me. We can do this. Okay, and I'm sorry that I, uh, that I read like a first grade teacher, but I just do. <laughs> it's just how I am. I'm being confident in the way God made me, right? It's just how he made me, so let's just do it. My king, as you were watching, a colossal statue appeared. That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying. No wonder his dream was troubled. The head of the statue was pure gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its stomach and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and became like shaft from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. Notice that king of kings is lowercase k. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the air, he has handed them over to you and made you ruler of, over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything, and like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes partly of a potter's fired clay. Sorry. Forgot to keep going there. Um, part, you saw the feet and toes partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it, and it crushed the iron, bronze, fired clay, silver, and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation certain. Okay, thanks for hanging with me. That's a lot. 
Before we go any further, let's put one point up about what this tells about God. Daniel made it abundantly clear that any interpretation would come from God. And then in verse 45, he said, The great God has told the king what will happen. God knew the dream. God knew the interpretation. Indeed, he knew the future. Now, don't write anything down yet. But what is the word that describes God as one who knows all? Omniscient. Omniscient. Omnipotent is all-powerful. Real close. Omniscient is all-knowing. Omni meaning all. And that absolutely is 100% true and accurate. But I want to give you a different word for this one. You can write omniscient, but I'm going to give you another one too. Because I think this one, I don't know, it just hit me. That it describes God and relates more to this particular story. And that's prescient. Prescient. You ever heard that word? Can you guess what it means? Knows in advance. Pre, before, shunt, knowing, so knows before. God had the foreknowledge. He knew before it would happen. God knew what would happen. He knew exactly what would happen. He knew why. He knew how. He knew when. We still don't know it all. But God did. And brothers and sisters, he not only knew that about Daniel... But he knows that about what's happening in your life, too. He knows what's happening tomorrow. He knows what's happening next week. He knows next month and next year. Let that give you confidence. Let that give you peace that God knows what's coming. He's prescient. Okay, the dream. I have a picture for you. Okay, Um, Babylon was the first kingdom. This is what we believe. I said we know some about this dream. Daniel told some. Babylon was clearly the first kingdom, the head of gold. We know that because Daniel said, you king, you're the head. You're the gold, head of gold. It was a massive kingdom. Remember, he had um, captured other regions and it was huge and he ruled it well that was Babylon the head of gold then most scholars believe that Medo-Persia from 539 to 331 BC was the silver and then that bronze was represented by Greece in 331 to 168 BC most scholars are pretty clear about that believe that that's correct And then what I put on your handout here is what's there as well, that the legs of iron were the Roman Empire. Some of the times the dates are are different. I think this one might be different than what's on your handout. I'm not sure. Um, Some said that the Roman Empire, and I really did look at lots of different pieces. Some said that the Roman Empire were the legs and that the... Feet of clay and iron mixed together were the divided Roman Empire. Others said, it was interesting, it's not the traditional view, but others said that the entire legs were more representative of the Islamic kingdom. And then still others said that the feet were the European countries. So the point is, we don't really know. God knows. 
We don't know. There's lots of different um, scholarly literature about all of it. We do know some of it, the head, the chest. We know that part. But what is not in doubt is that the stone represents the messianic kingdom. Remember when we read it said that there is a, a stone that will break off without a hand touching it from the mountain and will come and crush the other kingdoms, demolish all of them and set up its own kingdom that will fill the earth. That's the messianic kingdom. We are sure of that, we know. And it's so fitting to me that it was a stone. It wasn't the gold or silver. It was a stone from a mountain. And it just made me kind of go on a rabbit trail <laughs> and start thinking about all the stones that Jesus referred to. So I'm just going to give you a few. I don't know if I put them on here. Yeah, I guess I did. Um, consider what Jesus himself said right after the triumphal entry. He said, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. But get this part. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus says, the one you reject, and the one they did, they did reject him, will become the beginning of a new building, a new kingdom, after it breaks and it crushes what came before. I, I know I already showed you one picture, but this one makes me smile because I like the rock rolling down there. It says, Jesus Christ is coming to smash the other kingdoms. <laughs> you know, He is the stone. He is coming and he is the stone. And there's many stone references in Jesus' life. Of course, the cornerstone. And then consider his temptation. They, there was the temptation to turn stones into bread. Or cast yourself down because the angels aren't going to let you dash your feet against a stone. Um, of course, the stone, his tomb was sealed by stone. The stone was rolled away. The, upon this stone I will build my church. He even healed a man um, who had, was cutting himself with stones. He fore, foretold the destruction of the temple and said, Not one stone will be left standing. There's 46 times the word stone is used in the Gospels. 46 times. In the whole rest of the New Testament, it's only 24 more times. God clearly linked stones with the Savior, the Messiah, the one coming to set up his kingdom. That was a rabbit trail. Sorry, but it just made me smile. Let's keep going. If we're going to finish, we got to keep going. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, 
and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Okay. So with this revelation, when he told about the dream, this pagan, polytheistic king got it. And his first words are your first thing about God. He said, truly, your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. So that's your point. God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. He saw it. This God with an uppercase G is far superior to all these little G gods that the culture had idolized. He was indeed God over them. He used he he did. Yes. Yes, it is not all caps, so it would not be Yahweh. I don't know what it was. Adonai is the Hebrew word for Yahweh. That is also akin to Aramaic, which is a lot of the names for the Adonai. Okay. Lord. Yes, I thought that I didn't catch that till this time reading it. That that when Daniel said he that he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to positions earlier in the chapter, it was the other names, the their their pagan names. Yeah, yeah. But here it was the other one. Yeah. So even the pagan king noticed. That God was indeed God over all those little ones. Whether we recognize it or not though. Whether the king remembered that as time went by or not. I want to remind you that God is God over anything else that we've deemed to worship. In our culture. Like sports. Athletes. Social media. Politicians. Food alcohol, our kids, our grandkids, busyness, our jobs, our phones, anything else that we focus on, that we idolize, God is supreme over it, and he will win. We should be like Nebuchadnezzar here and bow before the God of God's. But he also said he was Lord, as H.M. pointed out, Lord of kings. Um, He saw all those kingdoms that were represented in that picture and realized that God was ruler over all of them. He had dominion over all of them. His kingdom will prevail. We should live with that in mind. Jesus is coming again, and he is the victor. He is Lord over kings, Lord over countries, Lord over political systems, He is Lord. Another thing that King Nebuchadnezzar says in these verses, and one that Daniel um, himself said when he spoke to the king. In fact, here are the verses where Daniel said it. I won't read them to you again, but see how it says, Then the mystery was revealed, and then he reveals deep and hidden things, and even he gives wisdom to the wise. 
King Nebuchadnezzar said it as well. He said that God is the revealer of mysteries. In fact, seven times in this chapter, the word mystery or mysteries is used. God is the one who reveals mysteries. In some versions, it says hidden things. Some of them, it says secrets. Here, Daniel, the prophet of God, was used by God to reveal the mystery of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. They both recognized it was from God. He was the source of of explanation. But really what I was thinking about today is God was really revealing himself that he was the prescient, omniscient God of gods and Lord of kings to both of them, to all of them through this dream. He told them what the hidden secret of the dream itself was and what it means and how he would conquer all the kingdoms. That's how God revealed himself here. And that's how God revealed himself through the Old Testament. He used prophets, visions and dreams and prophets like Daniel and others to reveal what was hidden, what was secret and what was to come because he's the revealer of mysteries. That was in the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? How did God reveal himself in the New Testament? Through Christ. That's how he revealed himself in the New Testament. Listen to Hebrews 11. I mean Hebrews 1, sorry. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, what we just said. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. God used to speak through prophets. They were his agents of revelation. But now he has fully shown himself through the revelation of his son, Christ Jesus. Jesus himself is the one who has revealed God to us. He showed us the Father. Remember, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The person of Jesus Christ is the final, complete revelation of the mystery of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory. So if you and I want to know the hidden and secret things of God, we must know his Son. Paul talked about how this plays out in our lives when he describes the mystery hidden for the ages. Colossians 1. I have become its servant. I'm going to read the whole verse and then we'll talk about it. I've become its servant according to God's administration that was given to me for you to make God's message fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generation, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, let's break it down. It starts out, I've become a servant. 
So what he's saying is, I've become a servant of the church. You didn't see the verse before, but a servant of the church. Because that's what God called me to do according to God's administration that was given to me. Why? To make God's message fully known. No secrets here. Jesus revealed God fully. The mystery hidden for ages and generation now revealed to a saint. That word mystery there is the Greek equivalent for the same word used in Daniel that was translated mystery or hidden things or secrets. So before there were only glimpses of this mystery revealed, but now God has shown it to all people. All people make known among the Gentiles, that's likely me and you, the glorious wealth of this mystery. Now here's the big moment. What is this mystery? Christ in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. <laughs> the revealer of mystery revealed himself to us through a son and then placed his spirit within each of us so that when we receive him, we can know God and have the hope of glorious life with him in eternity. Just makes you smile, doesn't it? I'm looking out here and y'all are smiling. It makes you smile. That's the mystery. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And it's been fully revealed in the life and death of Christ. Christian faith is rooted in the fact of divine revelation. Or as King Nebuchadnezzar would say, God being the revealer of mysteries. So, if we want to understand life's great mysteries, draw near to God through Christ. Study scripture from beginning to end. He will reveal himself to you. And as you study, you'll, better become, you'll become to better understand, like we did tonight, that God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Let that remind you of his sovereign power that's at work in your life. You'll know that God is prescient. He knows before anything. He knows what's coming. He knows what's going to happen. Let it calm your anxieties. God's the revealer of mysteries. He'll show himself to us as we study about Christ through his word. And as he does this, what should we do? Well, we should be like Daniel. We should live confidently and live in community. Because without doubt, we live in a pagan culture. Any additional questions or comments or thoughts about chapter 2? Lots and lots of scripture, but I just couldn't leave anything out. I'm sorry. Thanks for being so patient. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, I didn't think I'd let you out early, but I will tonight. I'll let you a little early. Let's pray together. Okay. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you that you are the one that we can look to. That you are the God of gods, the Lord of kings, the ruler over all. That you know all, even what's coming, you know it. And we can rest in that. Father, while we're here, help us to join together and live as your children, confidently doing what you've called us to do. Help us, Father. We pray 
in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you all for being here.